Welcome to Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and as a Mito patient myself, I appreciate you and the community you've helped us to build. This podcast honors the triumphs and struggles of patients and families affected by this disease and celebrates the work being done by doctors and researchers every day to make it a safer world for our people. We are a support group and a podcast focusing on all things related to mitochondrial disease. I'd like to welcome Liz Morris and Blythe Lord from the Courageous Parents Network. This is a wonderfully informative organization that feels, I I don't know, to me it feels like a hug and someone that holds your hand or an organization overall that holds your hand. And a big part of this podcast, Energy in Action, is really finding other resources that can be helpful for you out there. And I really hope that at the end of this podcast, this will be a website that you start leaning on because there is so much information and there's so much good that that you can find through the Courageous Parents Network. So I welcome both ladies to our podcast. And Blythe, I'm going to have you kick it off to kind of just explain the organization, what your goals are, your mission, and how you really talk to families. Thank you, Marcy. And what a wonderful way to describe Courageous Parents Network. As the founder, I love being compared, that CPN is being compared to a hug. That is a really nice word. Thank you for using it. So we are Courageous Parents Network, and we say CPN for short. We are a national nonprofit whose mission is to orient and empower parents and others caring for children with serious medical conditions by providing them with resources and tools that reflect the experience and perspective of families and clinicians who care for children living with serious illness. We do this primarily by a combination of producing and curating digital resources, which are available on CourageousParentsNetwork.org and our newest digital property, for lack of a better word, called neurojourney.org, and also through live programming to help caregivers navigate the illness journey with support and a sense of community. At the very center of CPN and NeuroJourney are parent and clinician voices that illuminate and share the lived family experience and which focus on the social, emotional, functional needs that families have. And, and this is an important ingredient with all of our work that sort of integrate the positive impact of palliative aware practices, regardless of the child's diagnosis and without uh, any bias. So we do not promote any sort of decision other than we do promote the importance of parental agency and parents feeling empowered as or parents and children where the children are, where possible parents, children, and I, and I guess patients, which the children are the patients, to be empowered as advocates for their child or for themselves and to really feel like what matters most to them is at the core of the decisions they're making and to help them see that they can do this very, very difficult thing and not just survive, but with help and appropriate supports actually thrive. Well, I don't think you could have explained it better. That was very beautiful. And I have to imagine that if I was in the shoes of you know, a parent who has just received a diagnosis, uh, a serious diagnosis, 
those are the words that I would want to hear. And as, as a Mito patient myself, I know how, how few and far between resources like this are. So I really am happy that we can bring all the information about what you all do to our Mito community. So I really appreciate you kind of going through that with us and walking through all of it. So tell me a little bit about the live programming. Does it hit different topics? Do you have clinicians talk? Tell us a little bit about that. I do want to say that I come to this work as the mother of a child who is diagnosed with a rare genetic condition at the age of five and a half months and who lived ultimately for another 18 months and died shortly after her second birthday. A lot of what informed my creating Courageous Parents Network was from my lived experience. And then everything that Courageous Parents Network has become is because of the network of parents and clinicians who have contributed their experiences, their perspective, uh, like Liz, to the network, um, some of whom have become staff or consultants. So it's, I think of it as like a big snowball that just keeps getting bigger and bigger as more and more wise, courageous people contribute. The live programming is we started off really just as a digital platform, producing and distributing videos, professionally produced videos, audio stories, guides, parent-generated blogs that focused on the psychosocial and emotional landscape of caring for a child. But then it actually started over COVID. We realized that there was an opportunity and a need to bring families together in a live capacity over Zoom, which we'd been using since before COVID, but we're like, wow, Zoom is fabulous. And now everybody's used to it and knows what it is to get people together to talk about a particular topic that was unique to this population, or perhaps not unique to this population, but not easy to find elsewhere. So um, it always features some sort of parent expert and often a clinician expert who is talking about a resonant issue. And we have done things as broad as supporting siblings, because siblings are a big, big topic. And that featured five bereaved siblings talking about what it was like for them when their sibling was alive and what helped them as well as a child life specialist. We have done things like dyadic coping with a marriage counselor who specializes in helping couples communicate during difficult times. We have done something as specific as decision-making around tracheostomy with that featured two clinicians who have studied their neonatologists, uh, who have studied decision-making around tracheostomy. Um, we know them. We've become really good friends with them and they, us. And so we had them and some parents who'd made that decision. Some had opted yes for a tracheostomy. Some had opted no, because as I said, we never, we have no bias towards a decision. We just want to, so we always feature parents or voices on who have made different decisions. And then we've done something as niche as pregnancy after child loss. And when the child who is sick is a twin. So it really brought big topics, small topics, Our event on siblings had, I think, about 90 participants attending, and our event on when the sibling is a twin had 12. 
So it really depends on what the topic is. Obviously, we are always eager for as many people to join as possible because it makes the conversation even more dynamic. But we also know that a lot of people are either sick and tired of Zooms or we know a lot of people watch a recording of the event after. So you are able to record those and those videos are live or they're they're housed on your website? If you go to CourageousParentsNetwork.org and go to explore and go to events, you will see two years worth of archiving, a two-year archive of all the events we have covered. And you can, it, I mean, there's a very wide breadth and almost all of them have an associated video recording of the entire thing. There are a few where we did not, and I'm pretty sure it's because the nature of the conversation felt too intimate to then have people just watch later. I have to assume that this is so helpful. And again, that feeling of a hug for a lot of these families out there that feel like they're so alone in their decision. And I love what you said about how you don't support any specific decision. You are just here to support the family itself and to kind of push these families to advocate for themselves, correct? Absolutely. And to give them to give them information, language, perspectives that help them feel more equipped to advocate, to give them permission to say yes, to give them permission to say no, to give them permission to ask for additional information or for more time, and to also help them hear from other parents who have been in their situation. And not just because hearing from other parents helps you see that you are not alone, but also that in hearing what other par- how other parents have thought, it helps you find what you yourself think, if only in reaction or response to something else you've heard. And I will tell you that a lot of that came from my own experience when my husband and I, when our daughter was newly diagnosed with infantile Tay-Sachs, we went to a conference hosted by National Tay-Sachs and Allied Disease, which is a patient group, not similar to like Cure Mito, for example, or UMDF. Uh, We went to a, the family meeting of and we met a lot of parents who were actively parenting their child. Um, some of them were bereaved, and we listened to them. And over the course of the 36 hours, we met parents who had made different, a range of decisions for their child. Some had elected a feeding tube, some, had, some didn't have a feeding tube, some did X, some did Y. And my husband and I found ourselves gravitating towards some over others and not because we liked the way they dressed or, you know, the way they smiled, but literally like listening to them talk about how they thought about their child's life and what quality of life, what meant to them and what their goals were for their family. We found ourselves going, yeah, actually that's how I feel. But if you had just asked me in a vacuum, what are your goals for your child's life? I would have been hard pressed to answer that. I've been like, what do you mean? What are my goals? Like my goals have already been blown out of the water. She's going to die. Like this is, I don't even know what you mean. But when you hear other people using very concrete language about day-to-day caregiving and their experiences, it helps you find your way in ways that are not abstract or medicalized. And Liz, I know you you had that experience when you found CPAN and were doing this with Colson, right? 
I did. Yes. <laughs> Liz, do you want to share your story and tell us how you came into the organization? Yeah, I'd be happy to do this. I'm really happy to be on this particular podcast because Colson lived with mitochondrial disease and the mitochondrial disease community, you know, has just been such a critical critical support for me um, in addition to CPN over the past several years. So Colson was born in 2016 after a normal healthy pregnancy, but very shortly after his birth, we understood that his newborn blood screening was abnormal. He was having difficulty eating maintaining his body temperature, things like that. So he was um, hospitalized at two weeks old. And by the time he was three weeks old, we were working with an assumption of primary mitochondrial disease. And then he was officially diagnosed with mitochondrial disease at four months of age via genetic testing. And I think as anybody who's experienced mitochondrial disease knows, a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease comes with a ton of ambiguity. You hear that it's potentially progressive. You hear that it's potentially degenerative. You hear that some people can live for years and years with this disease, with mild complications, and you hear that babies die young. Like there's just such a massive spectrum. And my husband and I were grappling with that spectrum very early, trying to understand what our child's life was going to look like. His disease progressed very rapidly in his first year. And when he was seven months old, we received a referral to pediatric palliative care from his neurologist because he had infantile spasms that were resistant to any medication. And so we began to assume that neurological impairment was going to be part of his clinical profile, which it was. I was initially very resistant to the referral to palliative care because I equated it with hospice and it is not. (laughs) Palliative care is not hospice. That is a myth I would love to demystify for so many folks. Then once we had a meeting with the palliative care team, I felt so much lighter because they were the team that was going to help us think really comprehensively about his clinical picture as well as his quality of life. And they introduced me to Courageous Parents Network. They gave me a flyer and they said, check out this website. You are not alone. Other parents have been in this very difficult place of not knowing what their child's future looks like. And so I spent time on the CPN website and to Blythe's earlier comment about orienting and equipping parents, I felt so much hope that other people had survived this, whatever this was, and I could survive it too. A parent's instinct is to keep their child safe. And when your kid is sick and when the future is very murky for your kid, that instinct is challenged in real serious ways. And you don't know what you don't know. And I found CPN to be incredibly validating in letting me know that we could navigate the uncertain future. And I've been a fan ever since. <laughs> and and now I now I support the org as a parent and caregiver collaborator. And I'm happy I, thrilled to do so. We have sucked Liz in, in various capacities. (laughs) I commend both of you for your resilience. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you both this, but I want to be in the line that have said it, that your resilience is helping others. And there's so many people out there that have experienced loss or hardship in in one way or another, and they can go into such a dark place. And I'm sure you have days where you do go into a dark place, but you also have days where you're really changing the world for a lot of families. I can relate to a lot of the material on the website, and I'm not a parent, but even myself as a mito disease sufferer, I can gather some good information and some 
basic feelings of like, oh, there's other people that are going through this. And I know that there are so many topics, as as Blythe explained, even within the live programming, but within the blog articles as well, I've read through a lot of them. And many of them talk about specific, you know, medically related questions or things to talk to your physician. But in addition, you know, Liz, I, I read an article of yours talking about preparing for your child's first birthday and how, you know, for your son, that didn't include a conversation about a cake. You know, families need to hear this stuff, just like, you know, I look to my neighbors with questions about our neighborhood. You know, there's no, we have to create that neighborhood for people that are experiencing rare disease. And yes, it doesn't look the same for every family, but we can definitely support each other. And I I feel like, you know, once you're in the rare disease boat, you're also more willing and have the gracious attitude to, to help others kind of pay it forward. So now let's kind of go back a little bit. Liz, you mentioned the topic palliative care. Why do you think people not fully understand and what should people know about palliative care? Courageous Parents Network is a liaison to the American Academy of Pediatrics section of hospice and palliative medicine. And I used to be the point person for that, but now it's Liz and she just came off a meeting with them. So it's all very fresh in her mind. When my daughter Cameron and my husband and I, we received palliative care from her primary care pediatrician. And the type of palliative care we got was really what I think differentiates palliative care from some of the other more technical pieces of medicine, which was um, conversations about what we wanted for our daughter's life, what mattered most to us. Uh, what did quality mean to us? And not that quality over quantity is not, has to be a choice, but really conversations about what mattered most to us for the day-to-day for our daughter in the context of an illness trajectory that was going to mean a number of things for her and therefore for our family. Palliative care clinician or palliative care practice, they don't have to be a palliative care specialist will do anticipatory guidance with you and say, these are the things that you are likely to experience and encounter over the course of this illness trajectory in order to make decisions about what that to give your child or yourself or your family the best life possible. Here are some things you will want to consider. They support you in that decision making. So they provide that anticipatory guidance and then they help you think about the things to consider. And they're really, really good listeners. So if you as a parent in this case, as Liz and I were, talk about things, you know, friends you've had who've experienced X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z felt really right to you when you watched it, they're going to, the palliative care clinician is going to recognize that those are things that you're going to want to bring into your life for your child. Or if you talk about experiences you've had in the past with the death of a loved one or the illness journey of a loved one and what you didn't like about that, they're going to be able to hear that and say, okay, well, given your past experiences with illness or grief or death, here are some ways that we can think about what it is you will want in this case. So they're very, very good listeners. They're not afraid to talk about difficult things. They don't get bogged down in talking about how to fix 
what's going on because a lot of times with our children, these aren't things that can be fixed. They're things that are to be managed. They believe in choice. They don't believe typically in shoulds. You should do X, you should do Y. And then of course, the the very niche part of palliative care is the pain and symptom management piece because palliative-minded physician or nurse practitioner is really, really eager to help your child be as free, or you in this case, um, be as free of physical discomfort as possible because they recognize that one can't typically focus on anything until one's oneself or one's loved one is not in um, acute pain. So symptom management is a big thing. It is not end of life. Uh, Hospice is really the tail end of palliative care. I would also add that palliative care for serious diagnoses, like a lot of the neurodegenerative conditions and genetic conditions that we see at Courageous Parents Network, a referral to palliative care can begin at the time of diagnosis, regardless of whether your child, you know, whether the prognosis is two months, two years, 20 years, the involvement of palliative care is always helpful as what is often referred to in the field as that extra layer of support. All right, Liz, what did I miss? I don't think you missed anything. I I do have a response. Marcy, you had asked, you know, like, why do you think parents are resistant to the notion of palliative care or why some people might panic like I did when they're offered palliative care. I'll just share from my own personal experience when we received a referral to palliative care when Colson was seven months old, I was resistant because that referral said to me, this is really serious and this is not going to get easier. And by this, I mean his disease. It was, it had become clear that his disease was progressing rapidly, that it was getting more complicated, that we were going to have more difficult decisions ahead of us. And the palliative care referral was my wonderful neurologist preparing us for that and saying, let's get you all the support we can possibly get. But I had to do the processing of, okay, wow, this isn't going to be a mild case of Mito and and my my kid's going to need extra support. And I think that's a very normal and natural and appropriate reckoning for parents to grapple with. And one of the things that I really appreciate about CPN is that one of the kind of core concepts that guides a lot of the content there is anticipatory grief. Blythe used the word anticipatory guidance as a part of palliative care practice. And anticipatory grieving is a thing that I think anybody with a complicated diagnosis does. Like the life I thought I was going to have, the life I thought my child was going to have is going to look very different. And I needed to take that time to do some of that anticipatory grieving as we transferred into the palliative space. And there was great support from CPN on that. I think it's really easy when you receive a diagnosis to get so bogged down in just what happens with your neurologist or with the cardiologist. And, you know, it also consumes your life. And so your life does really look so different. And those things need to be talked about. And even if you read an article and it helps you describe it to a relative or a friend, you know, I think you're better off. But having those real nuggets of, you know, help. There's so many pillars of how this can be helpful for families. I feel like I might be saying the same thing multiple times, but I also feel like I could talk about it all day. I know those feelings of isolation and I don't want that for other families. And I know how how important it is for families to be able to feel like they're a part of a community. Now, do you offer any services 
after a child has passed away for for families. Do you have any content on your website for them? Yes, we have, Marcy. Well, Courageous Parents Network is first and foremost for parents and caregivers who are actively caring for children living with serious medical conditions. It is the case that for some and too many of these children, end-of-life event comes, um, and that, I mean, some of these diagnoses are always uh, fatal in childhood. Um, Some children die unexpectedly there because they're living with medical complexity, and it is sort of always a little bit of a tricky, precarious situation. And for some, even for children with diagnoses for which there is not a certain prognosis, it is not, it wouldn't be surprising if the child, uh, if some medical complication uh, had made the child die. And the content that we have from interviewing parents for whom that has been what has happened, whether their child's end of life was anticipated or happened suddenly, but wasn't, it was a sudden death, but not an unexpected end of life, if that makes sense. We interview these families after, and they are reflecting on the before, and they are reflecting on the after. And the upshot of which is we have a lot of content for bereaved parents. Um, We've organized it into early stages of bereavement, later stages of bereavement, topics like your identity as a parent after your child has died, supporting the siblings in grief after their sibling has died, taking care of yourself after your child has died, lots and lots of different ways to slice it. And that that is how we organize it. So yes, we do have a lot of content for parents of children who have died. We also have a lot of content for parents who are anticipating and are one who are anticipating that their child's end of life and wondering what it will look like and how to prepare for it. One is never prepared. Even you can be very prepared, but one can't possibly truly prepare for your child's passing. But we, I also know from my own experience, it can be helpful for some parents to peek around the corner and look at what might be coming and what it might look like and to get some insights from parents who have been there and survived it and also get some practical advice so that the little stuff doesn't take you down, such as coordinating with the funeral home, considering cremation versus a burial. I mean, lots of stuff that I will say some patient groups don't want to talk about. Um, We will talk about. We know children die. And we will talk about it. Well, I give you a lot of credit for doing that. This is such a tough, rare disease overall is such a tough tough topic. And everything that falls in line with it is even harder to talk about. So you really have kind of taken the taboo out of a lot of these topics and hopefully helped the families feel more comfortable talking about it within their own, you know, families, religious groups, etc. And I, I give you both so much credit for, again, taking your experience and really trying to create a more robust 
opportunity for families moving forward to create things that you wish you both had yourselves. And there's so much to be said for that. And I really appreciate you sharing your stories, your personal stories, and telling us all about this organization and and throughout the website. I think there's so much value for our mito disease community, especially when it comes to, you know, the childhood diagnoses. And I thank you both so much for being a part of this episode. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. We will make sure to include your website information in the show notes so everyone will be able to access it very easily. Thank you, Marcy. I do want to say I want to commend you for what you have done as someone living in your adulthood life, living with Mito and being willing to talk about these very difficult things and what you've brought forward for the Mito community. I have, I had not known anything about mitochondrial disease until after starting Courageous Parents Network and starting to interview parents of children living with Mito. Liz was the very first mom I met and Courageous Parents Network does also feature conversations with several other parents of children who have um, different types of mitochondrial disease, including Lee's syndrome. And so we, we do feature some mito parents. Uh, the fact that is mitochondrial disease is almost irrelevant because all of the content is, it doesn't really matter what your child has. You as a parent have the same goals and values. So we are, we call ourselves disease agnostic. However, we do allow parents to search by the child's condition and see and hear from parents of children who also have a brain tumor or lysosomal storage disease or mitochondrial disease. So if there are some of the listeners want to hear from some other mito families, they can go and specifically do that. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful learning from both of you. And thank you for um, sharing again, your personal story and your passion you have for this organization is very easy to hear. So thank you. And we'll make sure to include all the pertinent information for our listeners to go and create value for themselves and their family on your site. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if you like what you see, please join because <laughs> then you get a, um, you'll get a, a monthly update of what's new on the platform. Okay. So there is an area to actually join Courageous Parents Network. There's a little button in the upper left. It's light blue. It says, be connected. Click on it. Give us your name, your email, how you found us, and what your role is, such as parent or extended family. Or if clinicians are listening, you could identify yourself as a nurse practitioner or a doctor, social worker, whatever you are. And then we are very careful not to overwhelm you with communications. We really just tell you what's new on the platform so you can stay current. Yes. Takes like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we'll make sure to make that clear for everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And I hope everyone takes value in this. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I encourage you to browse other Energy in Action podcast episodes. I'm so inspired by the resilience of those in previous episodes, and I know you will be too. 